Hello friends, it's great to be back. If you're new with us this morning, my name's Kurt, I'm one of the pastors here at Wild Street and St. Matt's. It's a pleasure to have you along this morning to look with us at this next section of Ecclesiastes. Um, it's exciting to be in front of people again. This is my second time in front of people. I got my first time down at St. Matt's a couple of weeks ago, face to face to be able to teach the Bible. Um, let's pray now that we could listen. This passage is all about listening. Uh, and as we pray, I need you to recognise that it's not just a comprehension exercise we're doing today, where you just need to listen to my voice. You actually need to think God's speaking right now. God's speaking through his word. We need to listen and be obedient to him. So I'm going to pray that very thing. Father God, we, we recognise that apart from the Holy Spirit of God, we don't have ears that can hear you. We don't have hearts that want to respond to you. And so we pray desperately right now that you're by your spirit, you would enable our hearts and our ears to hear what you have to say, to obey your word, to listen to it and sit under it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new with us this term, uh, we have been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, which we just read then. A wise teacher king uh, starts his writing with the question, what does man gain, ultimately gain, from all his toil under the sun? And time after time, we've read the conclusion He's kind of come to this conclusion over and over again that there is no gain, no ultimate gain because of the out of control, here one minute, gone the next moment of our existence. It's like chasing the wind. And I got people, I think you're online at the time, I got people to try and go around the house and chase the wind. It's like chasing the wind. We can never hold on to anything ultimately. Money, wisdom, possessions, family are all lost Because we live in this good but cursed world. A good world but a cursed world. And in the end we inevitably hit what is the tree of death. The tree of death. But in spite of that, human beings, and we know this, are incredibly creative at coming up with whiz-bang techniques of how to chase wind. You know, maybe with two fingers, maybe with a whole hand. Big contraptions. We're all trying to, we're all wind chasers. Because we think maybe this time, maybe this time we'll get it. And so as we come to chapters 4 to 6, and we saw Ben kick us off last week, uh, he talk, goes on to continue this, this kind of theme of this gain mentality or trying to make ultimate profit out of life. And he says that this drive for gain, this envy within us, it drives what we do and it leads to oppression It leads to isolation, it leads to workaholism, and it leads to greed for money and possessions. It leads to a whole bunch of brokenness in our world. And as you read through 4 to 6, you get his point. Don't make your life about the idol of money, or the idol of career, or houses, or your super, or your retirement, or your comfort, because you're never going to get the ultimate gain. It is chasing the wind. But right in the middle of this four to six section, you have seven verses at the beginning of chapter five. And in some senses, it seems like he's talking about one thing. He goes here and then he comes back and he keeps talking what he's talking about. And so whenever that happens in the Bible, you want to say, what's that little bit section about? What's that section? What's, why is that there? So in this four, verse four to six section this morning, we're going to see another threat. And, and potentially, I want to say for most of us here this morning... Potentially, it's the greater unseen danger. And it's not making the things of this world an idol, like money, possessions, and so and so. That our greatest danger is making God himself and religion 
that's devoted to him an idol to get gain. That our greatest danger is making God himself an idol to get gain. Now the passage starts with a warning and the warning is guard your steps. Guard your steps. So have a look with me. If you've got your Bible open there, verse 1, it's also up on the screen. The teacher says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, the house of God is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem, uh, built 800 years before Jesus. God designed it. Solomon built it. It was a building that visually, as you walked into that space, taught you about the true God. It, it was a building that taught you how to approach him. The, the, as you walk through, initially, you see an animal sacrifice, animals being sacrificed and blood everywhere. A reminder that because of our rejection of God, we deserve death and something needs to die in our place. That God himself had provided a means of enabling us to come into his presence by providing the place of mercy. As you keep going through, you'd see the priest showing you that you need someone to represent you before God. Then as you keep going through the temple, you get to a room where uh, he symbolically dwelled right in this centre room, and it's got these thick curtains in front of them. And as you go through that curtain, you would have seen a big golden box uh, with two angels on the top facing inwards, and right in the centre where you're expecting to see a statue, there's nothing. It's just just emptiness. It's, It's like they're all facing into this thing, and there's just nothing in this place. And so as you went through this temple, it was quite ironic because it was a building there to show you that God couldn't be contained in a building. (laughs) That God couldn't be contained in a statue. That when you got to the heart of the place where you think God's going to be sitting, or there's going to be a little statue, it's just not there. Because God is bigger than that. He's, He's beyond that. And actually inside the box, what did you have? You had two stone tablets which contained the very words of God, the Ten Commandments. See, as you walked into the temple, you saw... You recognise that God is the one who decides when, how, who and where he is to be worshipped. And this God is not represented by a statue, but he speaks through his word. He leads through his word. He rules by his word. Worshipping God, as you went into that temple, you recognised with the blood and all that. You recognised that worshipping God was a dangerous business. You can't just rock up and do whatever you want and say, I'm going to worship you like this today, God. He decides how, who and where he is to be worshipped. And so the preacher says, guard your steps. Mind yourself as you walk into the house of God. Now, we have to understand that because we live much further on in God's story of the Bible, when we talk about the temple in the Old Testament... We're not talking about the church or the church building in the New Testament. The Bible never makes those comparisons, okay? Uh, uh, Although some of our buildings are made to look like it. Uh, This is not saying when you come to church into God's holy house, you know, some people think, I could never go to church because I went there, I'd be struck by lightning. You know, that's the idea. It's the idea that the building itself is this holy place and God somehow hangs out up the front, although we've turned it around, so we've stuffed it completely, haven't we? Um, this is not saying if you do something bad in a church you're in a lot of trouble this is saying actually something more actually scary than that 
So the New Testament says that the Old Testament temple, where God's presence symbolically dwelled, when we think about what it looks like for us, is actually us as individuals. We are the temple God, both individually and corporately, because God's Holy Spirit has come to live in us. And so, and worship is not something you do just as you walk into the temple. Worship is something you do all the time, throughout your whole life, because you have God's Holy Spirit. You're walking temples, in a sense. And so what this passage is saying, something more intensive, and it's not just saying, guard yourself when you go into the house of God, when you go into the temple. It's saying, the Christian life is a very dangerous business. Guard your steps as you walk the Christian life. Watch yourselves because how you worship matters. And so as the preacher goes through this passage, he's going to give us three wrong ways to go about that. And then he's going to give us three right ways. And so firstly, the wrong, first wrong way is I'm calling sacrifice to gain. Sacrifice to gain. Now listen to rest, second verse, verse 1, second half. He says, To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing. Okay, now, if you read the Bible, you read the book of Leviticus in particular, God had instructed his people on on sacrifice. He says, when you meet together in the temple, you are to sacrifice, and that was a... Listening to God says we should sacrifice, but here he says, don't offer the sacrifice of fools because they're actually doing evil. Now, what's he talking about there? What's, what's a way of sacrificing, which is what God told them to do, but you're actually unaware about the fact you're doing evil? Well, a consistent error that occurs right through the God's story in the Bible is that God's people would offer sacrifice, and it wouldn't be about listening to God and thanking Him and giving praise to Him, but it was actually a means of gaining from God. It's an attempt to extort the blessings of God. Now, a classic example of this is in the life of King Saul. King Saul is, uh, in 1 Samuel 13, God's people are under threat from the Philistines. And so Samuel the priest says to him, wait until I come for seven days. When I arrive, I will offer the sacrifice on our behalf before the Lord. Now, Samuel, he said he's going to come in seven days. Saul's job was to listen to Samuel, who was speaking God's word, and be obedient. But Saul gets very, very concerned that the enemy army is getting closer and closer and the people are all saying to him, hey, we're going to get hurt, we're going to get hurt. And so he takes it upon himself to sacrifice the animal instead of waiting for Samuel. And so when Samuel arrives shortly after, he says, why didn't you obey what God said? And then Saul says, verse 12, 1 Samuel 13, he says, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal And I have not sought the favour of the Lord. I have not sought the favour of the Lord. See, the the sacrifice of Saul, who was God's favoured one, he was his anointed king with the promises of blessing if he obeyed. But Saul saw it as a means, this sacrifice, of getting the favour of God, of gaining victory in war. So it wasn't an expression of love and devotion to God who loved them. But in what was it? It was a sacrifice to manipulate God so that he had victory in the battle. And it's similar to the nations around them. 
the nations worshipped idols. They'd have different idols for different seasons and different things. They'd worship idols. They'd bring offerings to them. They'd bring sacrifices in them because they thought that idol, this statue, will give me rain for my crops. This statue will enable my family to grow and have lots and lots of kids. And that is consistently what God's people did with God. But what's interesting in this passage here, he says here, they do not know they are doing evil. They think they're doing what God told them to do. We're sacrificing, God. We're doing the sacrifices. That's what you said to do, isn't it? But it's not an expression of love and faith. It's a manipulation tactic aimed at getting gain for themselves. It's religious gain. Now, we might not kill animals. But how often do we do things for God, driven by the idea that if I do this for God, he's going to bless me. He's got to bless me because I've done that thing. I've paid him off. I've done the right thing. I've done it well. If I sacrifice this for God, then I will get something for him. Now, my my sense is right. This passage is right. Most of the time, we don't even know we're doing it. Most of the time, we're not aware of it. And in my experience, we only realise that our motivation has been to get gain from God when the gain doesn't come. When the gain doesn't come. About three months ago, um, I invested a bunch of money and, uh, and I lost a bunch. And um, I was devastated. And I, I remember there was this moment with Kelly when I got very, very honest uh, in my brokenness. And what poured out of my mouth, I don't know if you have those moments, what poured out of my mouth was actually in my heart. And what poured out of my mouth in that moment, and it shocked me, was I said, it's just not fair. I've served God for years. I deserve to get ahead. It's just not fair. I've served God for years. I deserve to get ahead. See, I didn't know that was there. (laughs) I didn't know that was there. It's really easy to miss. But God revealed in that moment that my sacrifice to him, not all of the motivation, because I think our motivation is always mixed, but part of my motivation for serving him had become about what I could get from him. Firstly, it's sacrifice for gain. Secondly, praying for gain. Praying for gain. Have a look with me at verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. The preacher is saying, be careful how you speak to God. And then he says, like, speak to God how you pray. Um, watch your words uh, and don't make them too many. Now what does he mean by that? Watch your words, don't make them too many. Is he saying that when we get up the front, our prayers should always be highly scripted and with theological precision? Watch your words. Don't say the wrong thing. Is he saying that our prayers should all be, always be really, really short and succinct every time, that we should go with the minimum amount of words and not be overly 
talking about stuff to God. Well, he could be saying that, but I, I think the, the New Testament suggests that the manner in which Jesus spoke is that he spoke to, G, to God all the time. Paul talks about praying without ceasing. The Psalms encourage us to pour out our hearts before the Lord, cast all our anxieties upon him. And so I don't think here is a, it's saying don't talk too much to God. I think the problem is not just talking too much to God, it's why you talk too much to God. And I think what he's speaking about here is what Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. They think they'll be heard for their many words. Just as we can use sacrifice, the things we do for God, to gain from God. So there's a temptation to think we can use many words in prayer to twist God's arm to get the outcome that we want, to get the gain. We can make God an idol to get what we want from him. So he says, no, 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 remember this. God is in heaven and you are on earth. Now, that doesn't mean God's too far away to listen to you. He can't hear you. No, what he's saying here is that God is holy. He is supreme. He is powerful creator who controls what and when things happen. And we've already heard about that in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That God is the one who determines the time. He makes everything beautiful in its time. He knows what will happen from beginning to end. And so the preacher is saying, it is crazy to think that you can come before God and through your many words or through your spiritual words that you can make God do what you want. That you can twist him, manipulate him to get the gain that you're after. Now this is a mass... I find the, when this is the biggest temptation to think you can do this, is when we're praying for someone we love who is going through illness. We're praying for someone we love who is going through illness. We pray that they will be healed because we desperately want them to be healed. We long for it. And the scriptures tell us that we should pray for that. Paul prays three times that the thorn would pass through him. And it's not a wrong prayer to pray for healing. But we should never think that the way we pray can somehow extort a positive response from God, manipulating him into a positive response, whether you think fasting is going to do it. You think if I fast for 40 days, I'm going to get a better result. Whether you think if I pray the same prayer every day and you've got this rote prayer that you found this secret prayer in the Bible and you pray it every day to try and get something out of God. Whether you think if I pray and I cry enough, I'm going to get a good result out of God. So we fall into thinking that prayer is there for gain. Don't use prayer for gain. Number three, vow for gain. Vow for gain. Verse four. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. 
Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now, vowing, making vows to God, it was part of the system that God had set up. He, he made provisions for people if they wanted to come before God and offer themselves in thanksgiving and obedience to God that they could come before God and make a special vow. And so one of those vows was the Nazarite vow. In the Nazarite vow, you wouldn't cut your hair, you wouldn't eat grapes, you wouldn't touch dead bodies. And it was a vow to say, I'm dedicating myself to you. I'm separating myself to you, God, as an act of love and thanksgiving. The preacher says here, if you make a vow, make sure you follow through. Now, I'm, I, I'm trying to push that into our lives here. And if I think to myself, what does that mean when at the beginning of every year, I say to God, God, this year I'm going to read the Bible in a year. Hands up if you ever made that promise. I'm going to read the Bible in a year. All right, hands up if you have failed in that promise. I'm going to read the Bible in a year. All right, we, we, we do all these things all the time. I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray every day. I'm going, to, I'm going to have hard conversations. I'm going to spend time with my wife. I'm going to have a date night every week. I'm going to vow that to God. You make all these promises to God, but we don't follow through on them. And so there is that confronting bit here where he's challenging that. You know, if you say you're going to do it, do it. But I think it's more than that. See, I think the preacher, as he's gone through, has, has no, has no, he has no belief that people are not broken. He knows we're broken. He knows we say and do things we shouldn't do. So what I think he's, he's pushing against here is not just making vows to pursue something good and then failing. He's going against vows with that really have no intent in following through, but vows that are purely made to, again, get gain from God. Vows that are made purely to get gain from God. So you say, so someone will come to church and they'll say, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to promise God to honour him and I'll go to church every week if he grows my business. All right, your business starts growing, you have no intent to continue going to church. All right, it's, this, it's this extorting from God by making these promises to God, empty words in a sense, in order to get God on your side so you can get what you want from him. It's vow to gain. Now, friends, the problem in our world, as Ecclesiastes has pointed out time after time, is that we have these hearts that want to seek ultimate gain apart from God. And we could think that it's just the problem of making money our idol or, or, or career our idol or retirement our idol. But the dangerous truth is it can happen just as much in God's church. We sacrifice, we pray, we vow to get blessings from God, to get gain from God, to get the life where we want. And the Bible says that is the wrong way to worship the God of the Bible. So what's the right way? Starts with listening. Starts with listening. So Ecclesiastes 5, 1, back to there again. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer, offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they, that they are doing evil. One of the key differences between uh, churches and temples, in a sense, is that the, twen- the temple as it functioned was more like 24-7. It was like, uh, it, the temple was in a sense like a radio station. 
where you would have heard consistently when you went to the temple, God speaking. Whether the priest would have been reading from God's word in the Bible, whether they'd be singing from God's words through that singing from the temple. Singing was a regular part that went all through the day. Whether you, they would be praying God's prayers from the Bible as the priests prayed those prayers. There were people dedicated 24-7 to man this place that God's words were consistently heard just like a radio station. And so the right response when you come to that space where the words are being spoken by God is what? It's to humbly listen. It's to listen to him. That's the most obvious response. And it's a command to listen that has gone right through the story of the scripture. If you go back to Deuteronomy, where God's people are right on the edge of going into the promised land before they're actually built the temple in the promised land, Moses gives them this instruction in Deuteronomy 4. He says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, is giving you. They were to listen. It's this, it's this basic necessity when you deal with a God who speaks to you and the way he leads you is by speaking that you need to listen. Now let me give you two reasons, quick ones, why we need to listen. One, this is an important one, we're not God. Just in case you woke up this morning and you thought to yourself you were, you're not We didn't make the world. We don't control the world. We don't know how the world works best. We are, in our very fabric of who we are as creatures, dependent beings. And so we need to listen to the God who explains life. And so the very nature of who we are in our construction, we need to be listeners. But second reason And there's others. The second reason is that God wants relationship with us. Have you ever had, maybe you have a friend who was just really good at listening to you. The person who just, you know, when you sit down with them, they're just going to listen to you. Why do we appreciate that so much? It's because when our friend listens to us, they are saying, I want to know you. They're not interested in that moment, what they can get from us, the gain they can get from us. They are receiving you and who you are as a gift. And so the writer is saying, when you come to the building where God speaks, you need to listen because you are dependent creatures. But, and also when you do that, you are receiving him as the greatest gift. You're receiving his words, his character, his insight, his person as the greatest gift. Listen to God. And his words. But it's not enough just to just listen. Secondly, we need to obey. Verse 4, he says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. As you come to the end of Ecclesiastes, that's one of his conclusions. He's going to go, Fear God and keep his commandments. We don't, we don't sacrifice, pray, and vow to gain God's favor. But we do these things and it's, it's an expression of obedient trust in the Lord. We listen to what his word says. We trust that he is good. And so we live his way. God, I trust that your words are good and I want to live according to them. So right worship is listening. It's obedient, faithful obedience. And thirdly, it is fearing him. That's kind of the summary in Ecclesiastes. At the heart of our posture to God is fearing God. So verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many... There is vanity, 
but God is the one you must be. This phrase, he dreams and words, it's a description of the person who is using God to make gain. The many words, the many dreams to get gain out of God. The writer is saying, just like every other attempt, whether it's through money, houses, possession, wisdom, all these attempts to get ultimate gain, so is religious gain. So is using God to get gain for yourself. You can't extort blessing from God. You cannot manipulate him through religious acts or devotion. But he says, instead, the right posture before God is to fear him. Stand in awe of the true God. Listen to what he says to you in the Bible and worship him as he says. Not cowardly in fear, like like when you come into the church, God's going to smite you because you've had a bad week. But a healthy, reverent fear for God. A reverent fear that recognises he is holy. He is supreme. He is all-powerful. That he is the one who determines the season. He makes everything beautiful in its time. A fear that makes us listen to him. Now, as people who are living a couple of thousand years after when this was originally written, we live after the time of Jesus. And so whenever we see sections in the Old Testament that talk about fearing God, sometimes we can think to ourselves, that was written for them back then, but now we've got a God who's Jesus and he's soft and cuddly. We don't need to fear him. We just need to fear that they need to fear because they had a problem. They had a sin problem that Jesus hadn't come yet. Hebrews 12, that's why I had that read before. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and this let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's nothing in the New Testament that says this instruction back here to fear God somehow gets removed when we move to Jesus. Here it's saying we should have reverence and awe because God is a consuming fire. But what's the difference between them and us? Well, the difference is this. Whereas back then they understood the judgment of God and they had the, uh, they had the sacrificial system which was a picture of God's mercy in enabling them to be saved from his, from his right punishment for their sin. Over here, we don't just have the sacrificial system as a reminder, but we have Jesus. And so the awe we now experience as Christians is not just awe that he is a consuming fire, but awe that Jesus himself came, God the Son, to absorb into himself God's consuming fire for our sin, that we might be saved. It's almost like, uh, who's been watching, there's an SBS or ABC, I'm not sure which one, they're doing a documentary on the fires that happened last summer. And apparently it's, it's, it's really, really intense. As you see the way fire just consumes bush, bushes and trees and everything like that, and, and, the, war, and the, like the, the ceilings in houses that have footage of, of things melting, that's a consuming fire. The Bible says we worship a God who is a consuming fire, that if you're imperfect, you'll be wiped out in its path. But that Jesus stood in the way. It was almost like a massive wall 
preventing you being consumed. And so if today you are someone who has not put your trust in the Lord Jesus, then the scary truth of this passage is that the consuming fire of God is coming for you. Because of your rejection of him, because you haven't thanked him and recognised him as God and run around thinking you were God, the consuming fire of God's judgment is coming for you and the only way you can be saved is through the death of the Lord Jesus on your behalf. If you've not received that today, that gift of Jesus' forgiveness through his death for you, then please speak to someone today. We'd love to chat to you about it. But if you are someone who has trusted in the Lord Jesus, then we should now live in awe because Jesus has stepped in to take the consuming fire of God. Be in awe of his justice and his mercy. But even more than that, Philippians 2, listen to what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Be in awe, be in fear that you are now God's temple. You have the Holy Spirit working in you to make you more like Jesus. Guard your steps. Be in awe. Friends, we are all in danger of chasing after gain through the things of this world. We know. We know the temptation, money, whatever it is, whatever your thing is. But less obvious is when we make our Christian lives about getting gain from God. Where we make God an idol to manipulate him through sacrifice, doing stuff and speaking to him and vows. This passage calls us to guard our steps. To be people who listen first. Who listen to him. Who listen to his word who obey his word. Say, God, this is how you design life to work best. I'm going to submit my life to you that we might walk with fear before the Lord. Friends, we worship a God who is dangerous. Are you living with that awe of his justice and mercy to in Jesus? Are you listening to his words? Are you trusting him by living his way? We need to be in awe of this God, friends. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you reveal to us in Scripture that you are a consuming fire. We thank you because of the Lord Jesus Christ that that consuming fire has been absorbed in his death for us that we might not receive it. Help us to be people who are in awe that the Spirit of God that filled that temple, the God himself, has entered into us who believed in you that we might live in awe before you. Father, we pray you might reveal to us very clearly where we are seeking to use you for our own gain through sacrifice, doing stuff for you, through prayers. If we are unaware of something inside us, in this moment, Lord, we pray that each one of us would have you just take your finger and point out something in our lives that you need to show us, that we might be people who listen to you Sit under your word, read your word regularly, that we might obey your word and that we might have a posture of of reverent awe that the God who has saved us is the God working in us to make us more and more like Jesus every day. And we pray in his name. Amen.